Good morning and welcome to The Crossing. I'm really glad that you're here, whether you're with us in person this morning or if you're watching online. Thank you for worshiping with us as God's people. One of the most enduring and widespread uh, beloved parts of American culture and society is our national parks, the beautiful landscapes and vistas of the United States. Most people who visit national parks, you know, they're referred to as America's best idea. And that's because when visitors go there, they're left in awe of the transcendent beauty, of the intentionality, and the power and the glory of God's creation. As most people feel that way, that is everybody except for the people who leave one-star reviews for national parks online. There are a group of people who do this. So uh, there's actually an artist named Amber Share. She noticed the trend of people leaving one-star reviews for national parks online, and she especially noticed the reasons for those one-star reviews. And so she used her artistic abilities, and she created these parody national park promotional posters. They're fake, but they're trying to convey people's disappointment with what most people would say is a grand, awesome thing, but these people give it one star. Let's look at a few examples. So there's Zion National Park, and if you could go and see it, like really see it with your eyes, you'd see the beauty and the glory of God's creation. But, but here's what a one-star review of Zion said. Scenery is distant and impersonal. (laughs) These are traits that I don't usually associate with nature, but this person felt this way. One star. How about this? This is a lesser-known national park, Uh, Isle Royale National Park. Um, So we can go to that one. Isle Royale has this mix of, beautiful mix of landscape and water features, but here's what the one-star review of Isle Royale said. No cell service and terrible Wi-Fi. How could you, Isle Royale, not have great Wi-Fi, right? Um, Like, you kind of see how they're kind of missing the thing that's right there. Let's go on to the last example, the Hawaii National Park, the volcanoes, some of the most powerful depictions of the glory and the power of nature. But here's what the one-star review said. Didn't even get to touch lava. (laughs) They're wild for saying that. I don't know what plans they had, but that's, that's interesting. Okay, these are funny reviews. The one-star reviews in national parks are pretty funny, but they're also kind of revealing and tell us something about who we are as human beings. First, these one-star reviews, they tell us that we really are, in a fundamental way, created to crave and be wired to be satisfied by a sense of awe, by something that is bigger than ourselves, that we're not only impressed with, but something that also leads us into a good and meaningful life. But these reviews also tell us that we can be surrounded by that bigger thing, by the intentional, beautiful, meaningful thing, and totally miss it. We can totally miss it, even though it's right there. Why is that? And why does it matter for our day-to-day lives? And what difference would it make if we didn't just see the bigger thing that's right there in front of us, but we experienced it, we knew it, and let it lead us into a life that is meaningful and beautiful? Human beings have been pursuing the meaningful and beautiful life for millennia through the art of wisdom. All ancient cultures had some kind of wisdom literature. Wisdom is a way to see the world as it really is, see the world well, but also live in it well, to see the bigger thing and to respond to it with our lives. Over the next several weeks, we're going to explore the wisdom of God in Proverbs. It's a book of the Bible. It's an ancient collection of wisdom for God's people. To, to help God's people see differently, but also live differently. 
And this morning, we're gonna start that by just looking at the prologue to the book of Proverbs. It's the first seven verses. We're gonna see how the prologue to Proverbs shows how biblical wisdom is different by helping us see the reality, the beautiful reality in front of us and, and how it helps us live differently. But at first, a disclaimer about Proverbs in the Bible and wisdom in the Bible. I think it's easy for me to treat wisdom like good advice that leads to a nice, comfortable life for me. Like, it's easy to look at Proverbs or wisdom in the Bible as, as a way to kind of have self-help, a self-help manual with a little splash of religious morality in it. Like, consider this quote from a pastor. This is a pastor describing his view of Proverbs. Generally, I dislike the book of Proverbs with its lack of theological content, its long list of platitudinous advice. Get this. Proverbs is something like being trapped on a long road trip with your mother which probably says more about him and his mother than it says about Proverbs, maybe, I don't know. That's a brutal one-star review of Proverbs, right? But here's the thing, I have a tendency in my heart to do this, to see God's wisdom that way. If we, if we see God's wisdom as just platitudes and advice and rules, we will miss how it fits into the life of faith. Or if we see the Proverbs as just a way to have a self-help manual and treat God like a genie in a bottle, where we kind of pretend like we can control him and get what we want, well, if we do that, we end up not only missing wisdom, but we end up missing God himself. But this is where the prologue to Proverbs and the wisdom of the Bible helps us, because it shows us how biblical wisdom is deeper than a formula for a happy life. That's because biblical wisdom has a unique foundation and a unique fruit that come about when we live with the kind of wisdom God made us to have. It helps us see the bigger, more meaningful, beautiful reality that we were made for. Let's start by looking at the end of the prologue in Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7. This is kind of like the thesis statement of the book of Proverbs. It says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now I want to unpack this phrase, fear of the Lord. For some of us, when we read those words or hear that phrase, we become uncomfortable, become uncomfortable really quickly. And maybe for good reason. Maybe somebody in your life along the way in influence has, has made you think that the fear of the Lord is something that should make you feel terrified of God or scared of God. Almost as if the Lord is this impersonal cosmic rule enforcer who's trying to keep you scared or keep you ashamed so that you stay obedient. Maybe for you, the concept of the fear of the Lord is one of the reasons why you feel like you could never really be known by God or loved by God. And that is tragic because when we really dig into this phrase, the fear of the Lord, we see that this phrase actually points to the reality that we are known and seen and loved by the personal, infinite God who made us. Let's talk about this word fear. So in Hebrew, the word fear is yara, is the root word. And sometimes yara, or fear in the Bible, can mean something like terror or fright, especially if it's terror or fear of other people, or maybe a fear of God and his judgment against sin and evil. But that's not always the way that yara is used in the Bible, especially in contexts like this. So in this context, God is communicating with his covenant people, the people that he sees and saves and loves and brings into his mission to bless the nations. And so biblical scholars of Hebrew say probably the best way in modern English for us to really understand the sense of fear here in Proverbs is with a word in English like awe or, or reverence, reverence and awe that lead to trust. This is the kind of fear, the kind of awe that you might experience when you're standing under a clear night sky 
and you can see more stars than you can count. You're left in awe of it. Or, or the reverence that you feel when, when you're standing before the grandeur of a mountain, and you're just overwhelmed with awe. So the fear of the Lord here isn't the kind of fear that makes you want to run away in terror. It's the kind of fear, the kind of awe that makes you want to stay and delight in the bigger thing that's right in front of you. It's the kind of fear that makes you want to be connected to that bigger thing. So Proverbs 1, 7 says that this fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the word beginning here doesn't just mean a starting place, like the fear of the Lord is something you could start with and kind of move on from. It's using the word beginning here almost like a foundation, as a bedrock. So the foundation of, of the wise, good, and meaningful life is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord isn't just this side dish emotion or experience that some of us can have. It's actually key to the story of the Bible and key to our lives. It points to a transcendent awe that we were made to have. Look with me at Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the psalmist is inviting all of creation to stand in awe of the creator God. We were made to crave awe and be satisfied by something bigger, to ultimately be satisfied by our, by our maker. Why? Because he created all things with the power of his word. There's nothing that could be bigger or better, that more awesome than him. So, so why does Proverbs start with awe, with the fear of the Lord as the foundation for the good and meaningful and beautiful, wise life? It's because awe is the driving force behind our desires and our decisions and our habits. We are wired to want it and to respond to it. We're wired to base our lives on it. And yet, the tendency of the human heart is to have a misplaced sense of awe. That's what the sickness of sin does to us. Look with me at Romans 1, 22 through 23. The Apostle Paul is talking about how sin impacts our ability to experience awe. So, claiming to be wise... They became fools. These are people living under the effects of sin. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you notice how the calling card of sin, the way that sin vandalizes God's world and the way that sin vandalizes our lives, is that it causes us to exchange the source of awe we were made for for something that's insufficient, we have a tendency to live for insufficient sources of awe, and we think we're being wise, but really we're being foolish. We're missing the bigger thing that is right there. And so when we live for insufficient awe, we end up living an insufficient life, and we feel more starved for the very thing that we were craving. We feast on insufficient sources of awe, and we're left more malnourished of awe than ever. What does that look like? One of the most pervasive ways that this happens throughout all human history where we settle for insufficient awe are the ways that we live for whatever is praised as wisdom in our cultural moment. And this is actually being called out by people today, not by people who are especially religious, but actually by people who claim to be irreligious. There's a recent article in the New York Times called The Empty Religions of Instagram by someone named Lee Stein. And I want to look at how Lee Stein unpacks this and puts her finger on the, the awe that we're craving. Let's, let's read part of her excerpt of her article. Stein says this, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager. 
but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning, get this, for reverence, humility, and awe. Our moral leaders, she's talking about the, the leaders, the influencers that try to make us be worked up into cultural moment, the things that we're pursuing. Our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? She goes on to say this. There is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs, the craving of all that we have to be satisfied by all, and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. I really appreciate Stein's humility and also her ability to perceive what's going on in our world today, what's going on in our lives, how she diagnoses our craving, our starvation for awe today, how we can be just like those people who left a one-star review as the national park. We can miss the bigger thing, even though it's right there. She says that she has a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. Like it's right there, but we can just miss it. But, but it's not just things through Instagram. We can kind of take, take Stein's title of her article. It's entitled The Empty Religions of Instagram. But we can substitute Instagram with other empty religions that we use to look for guidance and awe in the wrong places. Like, what about this? What about the empty religions of consumerism? Or the empty religions of workplace superiority? Or maybe something more covert and hidden in our lives. What about the empty religions of pornography? All of those empty religions are ways that we attempt to fill our lives with awe by filling our online shopping carts, by filling our bank accounts, by filling our sense of pleasure and experience. But in trying to fill ourselves with those things, we end up emptying our souls. But it's not only through irreligious ways that we can do this. There are ways that we can use religion to do the same thing. What about the empty religions of self-important church involvement? Where we use religion in our attendance at church, our knowledge of church stuff, as a way to use religion to reign over other people. When really all that we're doing is stealing glory from God. We're just doing Romans 1, what Paul said. And when we do that, we steal glory from God and we are more starved for the bigger thing. Because at the end of the day, it's really hard to be in awe of God when you're just in awe of yourself. And the problem there is not only internal in our lives, it is also relational. Because the foolishness of sin doesn't just cause us to be less satisfied and more starved for awe, it also makes us less free to love other people when we deride other people online, when we let consumerism get in the way of generosity toward other people, when we let the, the corrosive effects of comparison infect the life of a community. See, foolishness in the absence of wisdom isn't just an intellectual problem. It's a, something that affects all of who we are, mind and body and relationships. It causes us to use our power and our presence and our sexuality and our resources to to put it toward things that are insufficient in giving us awe. And so those insufficient sources of awe, they don't just dethrone God, they also dehumanize other people. What is God's response to our awe starvation? Look with me at Psalm 130, verse four. But with you, with God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Now notice how, how this verse is different than what we might expect it to say. I might expect it to say something like this, but with you there is might that you may be feared. Or maybe we would expect it to say, with you there is forgiveness that you may be adored or loved. But that's not what the psalmist says. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God is worthy of reverence and awe because his power is displayed through forgiveness. So we're free, set free to fear God, to be in awe of God because he loves us. The ultimate expression of that reality is in the cross of Jesus, the empty tomb of Jesus when he brought resurrection reality into our world, into our lives. So the Bible's saying if you really wanna be in awe of God, you have to look at how God deals with the most awful thing in reality. See how God deals with the problem of sin and death. If you really want to be in awe of the living God of the Bible, you, you, you don't just stand under a beautiful night sky. You don't just stand before the, the beauty and the grandeur of a mountain and, and revel in his glory as the creator. You do that, but you also have to stand in awe of Jesus in the cross and the empty tomb and see that God's love for you as the recreator of all things. That's what cultivates awe in our lives. And when that happens, two things occur in our lives. First, we're absolutely humbled because we realize that God's power and God's love cannot be manipulated by us. We realize that the foundation to the bigger thing, to the beautiful and meaningful life, is not us. And so if living in awe of God doesn't humble us, then we're probably not actually encountering and seeing the living God of the Bible. We're probably still in awe of ourselves. And at the same time, if you're in awe of God and it doesn't absolutely capture your heart with a sense of his love for you, his forgiveness for you, then you're probably not seeing the God of the Bible either. See, living in the fear of the Lord and awe of the living God, we realize that we're absolutely loved by the God who holds all reality together. We're in awe of the truth that with him there is forgiveness. So in that way, the fear of the Lord doesn't just point to the heart of wisdom. The fear of the Lord points to the heart of the gospel. Do you see it? It's right there. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom that we need. And when we see it and are satisfied in the awe of God, our lives are set free to finally bear the fruit of wisdom. What does the fruit of wisdom look like in the Bible? Let's go back to the prologue to the Proverbs. Here's the fruit. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Now notice with me how the, the fruit of biblical wisdom is different than the conventions of our cultural moment today. The fruit of biblical wisdom is not centered on the self. It is not centered on self-gratification or on self-actualization. Wisdom in the Bible is not about making a better life for ourselves. It's about character transformation that leads to a life that blesses other people. Notice with me these three words here, righteousness, justice, and equity. Those, those are intentionally used in the prologue to Proverbs. Because throughout the Bible, righteousness, justice, and equity are used to describe the character of God. Th those are the character traits that are used in the Bible to bring people in awe of the living God, of Yahweh himself. And yet here in Proverbs, these three words are used to describe people 
who live in the fear of the Lord. So the awe of God is not something that just stays in our lives, a life as individual people. It's something that moves through our lives. We respond to the awe of God by displaying the character of God in everything we do. But the only way for that to happen is for us to really see his awe for what it is, to really see him. Several years ago, there were some special glasses that were created to give people who live with colorblindness the ability to see color and the beauty and the meaning of color and the way it surrounds our world. I want us to watch a a short video of people who try in those glasses for the first time. And while we watch it, pay attention to the ways that seeing the thing that's really there, the bigger, beautiful thing that's there, creates a response in people's lives. Let's watch it. I didn't really know there was such a thing as colorblindness at the time. I think I was six or seven. I thought maybe I wasn't intelligent enough to tell because I didn't know and I didn't tell my parents. So I just, I stopped painting and drawing. There's some drawings where I wish I could see how my kids put the colors together and what they were visualizing. It's not that I can't name them. There's, there's nothing there. That's gray and that's gray and that's gray. I had moments where girls would make fun of me for not knowing girly shades, and I felt self-conscious about it. Sometimes I feel like there is a world of color that I'm just sort of missing out on. Colorblindness is a situation where because your eyes are different than someone else's eyes, you don't see the world the same way. Commonly, red and green don't look different, but look the same. So if there's a kind of a color filter, kind of glasses that would separate colors, they suddenly can see red and green. There's nothing wrong with the wiring. The problem exists in the eye with the photopigments. So Valspar is working with us at Enchroma to bring color to everyone. We developed these glasses to enable colorblind people to see color for the first time in their lives. like this whole end of the of the spectrum that I just was completely not aware of. I'm like getting misty. This is this is amazing. I've never been able to see this one. And I just want to cry a little bit. <laughs> um I never realized like how much I was affected by the fact that I can't see the world like the way that other people see the world. When he's drawing, I see him going in and out of his crayon box like 150 times sometimes. Oh wow, that's cool. And now I kind of know why. There's a lot more colors here. All these things that are intentional in life, I never caught on to it. In the end, the experience of color is so private that you don't really know how to explain that. So is that what you guys see every day? Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, just everything's flatter. Everything's, yeah, kind of, yeah. 
I don't want to take them off. Um, it's just dull. It's a little dull, to be honest. I never really thought about my colorblindness that much. It was just something that I had that I dealt with and that wasn't really a big deal to me. But color is an amazing experience that I think people probably take for granted. So what if there's something intentional in life, just like color, that, that you haven't caught on to yet? Maybe that's what it's been like for you in living in awe of the living God. Look, maybe you've never set foot in a church until this morning, or maybe you've been trafficking in a church for a long time, but you feel like there's something that's missing that's right there if you could just see it. And the Bible's trying to show us that that thing, it's not just an idea, it's the living God and the awe that we see in him, his love and his power. What if there's a world of awe that you're missing because you're missing the awe of the gospel in Jesus? It's right there for you. Not to just see it, but to respond to it, to embrace it. That's how the earliest followers of Jesus lived. Look at me at Acts 9.31. The earliest followers of Jesus, the, the church where all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the life of God's people, the essence of who we are is marked by walking in the fear of the Lord and the awe of God that leads to our freedom as the Holy Spirit moves in and through our lives. So Proverbs was telling us that the word of God is like those glasses that helps us see the awe of God that's really there. And it's also saying that it's not just the word of God, it's also the people of God. The church are meant to function in that way, to be the glasses to reveal God's awe to the world. That is why biblical wisdom matters. It is not a list of platitudes and advice. Wisdom is how we display the character of God in everything that we do. Because when God's character is shown, God's kingdom spreads. If you really wanna see a wise person, you won't see someone who's going around walking throughout life, leaving a trail of their own glory and awe. If you wanna see a truly wise person, you will see someone who is walking in the fear of the Lord and pointing other people to his awe in the gospel. And when that happens, lives are changed, homes are changed, schools and neighborhoods and friend groups and offices and communities and churches are changed by the awe of God. That is how wisdom works. In Jesus, God sets us free to really see him and to be really satisfied in him so that we can love with wisdom. God is calling us to be wise people who open our eyes and live in awe of his love so that the world can see him too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you make us a wise people? As a community, would you make us a sanctuary? where your character is displayed and people can see who you really are. Would you make us that kind of people for your glory in your story, in Jesus' name.